in our time, um, as we'll find out um, many of the titles of the novels are actually uh, from, um, from, from very um, canonical works or you know, very um, ancient works um, in the case of Faulkner. Um, in the case of Hemingway, um, the title is from the Book of Common Prayer, Give Us Peace in Our Time, O Lord. Um, so it's very much it's a meditation um, on war um, and peace and thinking about what happens in war and also thinking about what happens uh, when we have theoretical peace, um, but maybe war is still going on in some fashion. So it's really um, praying for peace. Um, I should talk a little bit about the publication history of In Our Time. Um, it has a, a very um, interesting and complicated publication history. Um, initially, um, a lot of the, the vignettes from In Our Time, uh, what a, we would call vignettes, Hemingway calls chapters, um, those were published first. So they were published in the little reviews, and this one is actually called the little review. Um, and um, so there's some publishing there. And um, some of the stories actually uh, were also published um, in little reviews, and this one is called um, what we now call Indian Camp, um, that we'll be talking uh, about today. That was published in the Transatlantic Review. Um, and the first edition of In Our Time was actually published in Paris. Um, it was published by the Three Mountains Press, um, very, you know, handcrafted look. Um, in fact, it was handcrafted, um, only 30 pages. So, you know, really just all the vignettes, all the chapters uh, were in that edition. Um, and only 170 copies were printed. So, you know, this is really the very beginning of Hemingway's career. And it's really interesting um, to see that he, that's how he started out. Um, someone who really uh, was thinking of 170 people reading his, his work. Um, and then, um, but even though only 170 copies were printed, um, it actually got very, very warm uh, responses right away. And it is actually amazing to think that it got picked up right away by, um, by Fitzgerald, uh, who wrote to his editor, Maxwell Perkins, um, as Scribner's, uh, saying that um, the, the vignettes are really remarkable and I'll look him up right away. He's the real thing. So, you know, this was back in 1924 when Hemingway was total unknown. Um, so the uh, edition, um, the first American edition, uh, was published by Bonnie and Liverwright. Um, this is Hemingway's first publisher. He would then move on to Scribner's, um, and Scribner's is the publisher that controls all the copyright um, to the the Heming all the Hemingway novels. Um, but he started out with um, Bonnie and Liverwright, and there were a few more, um, not just the vignettes now, uh, but a few of the stories were included um, in this edition, 1925 edition of In Our Time, um, but uh, still a very um, handmade look. Um, and uh, Hemingway did not have a very happy relation to Bonnie and liberate, um, and mostly having to do with the structure um, of the of in our time. Um, so he um, um, on April twenty second, he wrote to his good friend, author John Dos Passos, saying, 
and Mrs. George Kaufman is here, and she claims they want to cut it all out, the Indian camp story, cut the in our time chapters, Jesus. I feel all shocked to hell about it. Of course they can't do it, because the stuff is so tight and hard, and everything hangs on everything else. So this is 1925, but already we can see um, the Hemingway that we recognize later, somebody who loves um, his material, wants his material to be tight and hard, and everything hanging on everything else. But still, it is a very, very strange claim, given the fact that, in fact, the publication history of In Our Time suggests that it wasn't conceived of and it wasn't initially published as all in one piece. It was actually published separately. So um, a very, and, but meanwhile, Hemingway is going to claim that, in fact, he wants everything all in one piece. So um, I think that this is something that we should uh, really think about. You know, we should certainly take Hemingway very seriously, um, that he's insisting that everything is hanging together, um, but also maybe entertaining the possibility uh, that maybe they're looser um, than he would like to think or that he claims. Um, so let's think about, rather than taking Hemingway completely, um, at his word, let's just say um, that uh, we'll think of the narrative structure of In Our Time as a puzzling structure. Um, that, and this is something that we can say, I mean, there's not much dispute about it. It looks, doesn't look like, um, you know, a short story collection, doesn't look like anything else that we've read. Um, so this very unusual structure of the stories being interspersed with the chapters. Um, and there seems to be uh, an apparent disjunction uh, between these two. Um, and there's also a kind of very rapid shift um, of location and perspective um, between those pieces that are set in wartime Europe um, and those that are set in peacetime um, America in the Midwest. Um, so it doesn't work as a, a linear streamlined kind of narrative. It doesn't look like a traditional novel. It doesn't look like a collection of short stories. So you know, there's something to think about, to puzzle over. Um, so what I'd like to do today um, is actually to give Hemingway the benefit of the doubt. Um, he's saying that everything hangs together. So let's read three pieces as if they did, in fact, hang together, okay? So, you know, this is um, an experiment in reading. Um, you know, we can, we can never prove for sure that they do, in fact, hang together. But because Hemingway is so emphatic um, about it, um, let's just do this little experiment of reading three, two stories, and then one chapter, uh, one interchapter, um, as if they all belong together. Um, as a unit, but to say that is also also to say that you know you guys can experiment with other clusters, right? You know the cluster is this is a possible cluster. You can experiment with other possible clusters. So you know when it comes to writing papers, this is a great opportunity to try out to see which goes with what. 
Um, so the three that I'm proposing to read together is first of all Indian camp. We know for a fact that that was published separately. So let's not forget that for a moment, okay? But still, given that it was initially published in the Transatlantic Review, let's group it with the other two, um, and then chapter two, and then doctor, the doctor and the doctor's wife. The reason that um, those three hang together in my mind um, is that they actually have the same kind of thematic, um, uh, they, they work on the same thematic register. Uh, and they also work on the same um, kind of macro, micro registers um, that we were talking about last time. So the macro register um, is that there is the tension between the Anglos and the Native Americans, right? Both these stories, let's leave out the chapter first because it is obviously about something else. Um, but Indian Camp and the doctor and the doctor's wife, um, they both are about the relations between the Anglos and the, the, the Native Americans um, and about the tension conflict um, between them. Um, and both stories um, also share uh, some important similarity on the micro register. Um, the Indian camp obviously is about the phenomenon of pain um, and about violence to oneself, about injury, uh, about injury to others, about, um, about violence to oneself. Um, and the doctor and the doctor's wife is about potential violence, right? You know, a fight could break out in that story, uh, but it doesn't. So in some sense, it's the opposite of Indian camp. It is about the possibility of violence that is being averted. So you know, just on that basis, it would seem that there's some kind of relation um, between them. Um, so let's look at the um, macro register first. I mean, it's not as macro as you know, history of World War One, um, but it's macro in the sense that it's really a, it, it is about important sociological. Um, facts about the United States. Um, the stories are set um, in Horton Bay. Um, actually, this is where um, the Hemingway family uh, would go for their summer vacation in Michigan. Um, and um, the Native Americans are Ojibwe, uh, uh, Anishinaabe, um, the, actually the preferred uh, destination by them. But mostly, you know, the Ojibwe, I think, is the more common name. Um, very well-known group, uh, very important uh, group of Native Americans. Um, so there's a whole book written about them. Um, and, um, and I also, so this is the, we, this is the background um, to the macro history um, of the two stories. Um, and I'd like to introduce um, three um, additional perspectives now on the micro level. Uh, which is talking about the phenomenon of pain and injury and violence and so on. And um, you might or might not have um, read these people, but they're very influential people, including uh, obviously a great painter, uh, writing about uh, pain and injury and so on. So let's um, just be Elaine Scarry, Susan Sontag, and uh, Eva Munch. Um, so let's just begin with Elaine Scarry. Um, this is a book. Um, that came out in the 80s, 1980s. Uh, it's called The Body in Pain. Um, and um, a lot of it um, actually has to do, and she's done extensive research um, with M and using the archives at Amnesty International, uh, looking at the phenomenon of pain as a consequence of torture. Um, and the argument about the book 
is that um, that when uh, prisoners are tortured, uh, when there's really nothing in the world open to them um, except for the experience mm -hmm. of pain, um, then they lose the ability um, to express themselves. They lose the ability to have any kind of linguistic relation to the world, including the linguistic relation of being to able to describe your own pain. So what she argues um, is that there's a breakdown of language under extreme conditions of pain, that pain basically breaks down our world. And the first thing, and the most important thing to go is our language. Because according to Elaine Scarry, it is language that anchors and constitutes our world. So um, it is an argument about um, the power of pain and its ability to dehumanize us because uh, it takes away our ability to do the most fundamentally human thing, namely to speak, use language. Um, so this is one end of the spectrum um, in thinking about pain. On the other end of the spectrum, a very, very different kind of philosophy um, is um, the, the public intellectual Susan Sontag, who might have, uh, she, di she's, she died um, a few years ago. Uh, but um, her work has been really, really important uh, for, for many, for decades, really. Um, and one of her most, uh, one of the best known books is called Regarding the Pain of Others. Uh, and she really has a completely different take on pain um, from Elaine Scarry. She argues that um, rather than thinking about the phenomenon of pain itself as a kind of experiential reality for us, um, she's interested in how um, the observation of pain in others uh, gives us pleasure that in some sense we are affirmed. We affirm our own being. We affirm ourselves. We affirm the fact that we are not feeling pain when we see pain in others. It's a very tough and in many ways a kind of disturbing argument um, that her, her basic sense of the world is that we affirm our own being by being able to tell ourselves apart from others. So when we see someone in acute pain, we know that we are someone else, that we are what we are, because we're not going through that pain, right? So there's kind of indirect pleasure um, from seeing the pain in others, and um, you can see it in the um, cover of her book. Um, so it's a very disturbing, but something to keep in mind. Um, and uh, the both of those models I want to call to your attention uh, because I think that the Hemingway um, actually uh, has something to say um, to each of them, actually. And I would encourage you in section to think about how he would, what Hemingway would say to Elaine Scarry, what Hemingway would say to Susan Sontag. You know, he obviously wasn't writing for them, but given the fact that he has written stories that have to do with pain, how he would, re would respond to those, um, to those theories. Um, but I think that Hemingway is actually closest um, to the painter Munch um, and the very celebrated uh, painting, The Scream, um, and it's really about pain as a sound, right? So pain coming out as a scream. Um, and it is a corrective to Elaine Scarry in the sense that even though we might not be able to speak, 
uh, when we're in acute pain, we still are able to express ourselves because we can just cry out, even though it's not a linguistic, it's not a word that we're saying. The very fact that something is coming out of us suggests that um, the capacity for expression hasn't uh, completely broken down. Um, Moon just not especially interested in thinking about what the scream would do to others, right? You know, so basically, this is just somebody who is crying out in pain and probably not bodily injury either, but just psychic pain, just screaming out. Moon um, just not putting into the picture um, what the scream would do to other people listening to that scream. So I would like to see Hemingway as collaborating with Munch. Munch is giving us the scream coming out of the person who is suffering. And Indian camp is Hemingway's extended meditation on the phenomenon of the screen, scream, on what the scream would do to people who are completely vulnerable to that sound of pain. Um, usually we just think of ourselves as being vulnerable to pain, but we're also vulnerable to the sound of pain. So this is a very different model from the one suggested by Susan Sontag. You know, I'm already giving you a bit of an argument about Hemingway. We say um, Sontag is really thinking about pain as a kind of a visual pleasure to other people. We see other people suffering and we get some visual pleasure. Hemingway is about the auditory pain that we get as a consequence of our ears being helplessly open to the pain of others. So there's basically a very different, important difference between the eye um, and the ear. And I think most people would agree that we can shut our eyes. You know, we don't have to see something if we don't want to. Uh, we can really shut our ears. Um, we can remove ourselves to greater distance and shut our ears that way. But if we're in the neighborhood of someone who's screaming, we can't really shut our ears. Um, so Indian camp is really about what happens when someone cannot shut his or her ears uh, to a scream. So um, it's uh, about a woman giving birth. Um, and uh, Nick's father, who's a doctor, coming to attend to that woman um, is about uh, an Anglo doctor coming to a very close-knit Native American community to take care um, of a Native American woman under very primitive conditions. Um, but Hemingway spends a lot of time actually not just talking about Anglo and Indian relations, but also about the relations among Native Americans, right? So this is how the men react to the woman giving birth and screaming. The man had moved off up the road to sit in the dark and smoke out of range of the noise she made. She screamed just as Nick and the two Indians followed his father into the shanty. Um, so this is actually the baseline for Hemingway is that the scream is unbearable, even to her own community. This is someone who is actually inflicting pain and injury on her own Native American community 
not because of any conflict with them, right? So this is a very important fact to know. This is not a socio-political conflict, socio-economic conflict. It is not the conflict between two different ethnic groups. It is an involuntary conflict within one close-knit ethnic group. The woman can help screaming. She can help causing pain to her own community. So the men are trying to do the best they can to get themselves out of the way um, of, the, of the painful um, screaming that they're hearing. Um, and we can think about what follows from this given, from this baseline. Um, and actually, there are two outcomes. Um, and one outcome is actually um, very much predicated on the importance of ethnic difference. So here are the Native American men uh, being completely overwhelmed uh, and helpless in the face of the screen. But one person, one person who's not affected by the screen. Why is he not affected? But his screams are not important. I don't hear them because they're not important. Who is it that says that? The doctor, exactly, thank you. Uh, it's Nick's father. So what enables him? What is it that insulates him from the screen? It seems that if there is something else that can override that sound, if there's something else that is more important to you than the immediacy of that sound, it can serve as a protective shell. And as it turns out, it is the doctor's professional identity that he's able to explain to Nick. Um, what she's going through is something called labor. The baby wants to be born. The baby is trying to be born. She's trying to her best so that the baby would be born. Um, he has a completely coherent explanation as to why she's going through the pain. And he has a completely coherent explanation as to why she's screaming right now. So the coherence of that explanation and the fact that he is professionally equipped to put an end to the scream, the fact that he as a doctor can just perform the cesarean operation so that the scream will stop. Um, both his ability to explain the phenomenon and his ability to put an end to the phenomenon, those two work together so that the scream, while a fact of life, is not going to be devastating to the doctor. And we all know that, right? If doctors were going to be devastated by screams, they wouldn't be doctors, they wouldn't be able to operate. So a very important feature of the professional identity of a doctor is that they should be able to, lot, to take a lot of sensory input that would be unbearable to other people and be able to put that sensory input in its place. Um, being able to explain it is being to put it away and being able to cope with it. And here's the doctor being able to cope with that. So this is one possible outcome, is that there's basically a kind of neutralization <coughs> of the scream. Um, it is not piercing, it is not devastating. But the process of neutralization doesn't always take place. So this is the outcome 
to um, the doctor. Nick's father is congratulating himself, um, you know, that he's performed the operation. Uh, he's able to do the cesarean with just a jackknife. Um, he's going to write it up for the medical journals. He's very, very happy as a doctor. Uh, he feels very much affirmed. And then there's one other development. Uh, he looks at the proud father, um, the person who ought to be the proud father. Uh, he quickly turns away and tells Nick not to look. So we know what the outcome too is, um, what happens when someone who is not insulated by his professional identity um, is helplessly subject to the strain. His throat had been cut from ear to ear. The blood had thrown down into a pool where his body sat the bone. So this is a very extreme reaction. Um, I honestly don't know how common this is that a father uh, would just go to the extreme of taking his own life um, because he can't really take the pain of his wife. Um, but is the opposite model from the Susan Sontag model is not taking pleasure from the pain of others, but being completely devastated, being completely destroyed by the pain of others to such an extent that you want to take your biological life because your inner psychic life has been so devastated by what you cannot bear to go through anymore. Um, so this is um, an extreme case of empathy. Um, the husband empathizing with the wife, feeling the pain of his wife to such an extent. It's almost as if the pain is doing more to him than it is actually doing um, to his wife. Um, so this is one uh, way to think about um, pain, how natural it is. Uh, it's naturalized because it is, uh, has no uh, socioeconomic explanation to it. It's just a fact of life that women will give birth. And it is a fact of life that they suffer tremendously when they give birth. And it's also a fact of life that when they suffer, other people <coughs> are likely to suffer as well, right? So this is kind of a transitive relation of pain spreading out and becoming more and more common, becoming more and more a condition, a universal condition of life. Um, because there basically is no boundary between the pain of one person um, and what someone else is likely to go through. So we can say that what we see in Indian camp um, is, to some extent, a story that gestures in two directions. On the one hand, there's a lot of interest in the tension between Native Americans and um, Anglo-Americans. Um, that's not unimportant. It pulls in one direction. It also pulls in another direction, and it pulls in the other direction on the micro-register in terms of pain, um, that really the most fundamental drama is almost regardless of the relation between Anglos and Native Americans. You do it to everyone, and you do it every time you go through pain, every time you go into labor. This, some, this is going to happen. Um, so it's kind of a naturalization of pain as a kind of universal condition. Um, let's look at the interchapter um, and test this possibility, whether or not Hemingway is really wanting to explore 
the phenomenon that there's nothing to be done about pain, that it is the most fundamental fact of life, that it is as natural as the sense of hearing. Um, I think that in, in Indian camp, um, there's a sense that you know, just as we can help the fact that we have a pair of ears, we can help the fact that we're going to be vulnerable to the sounds of pain made by others. Um, in chapter two, Hemingway is um, testing this possibility by the same kind of play between the macro and the micro register. Um, so the macro register is the uh, Greco-Turkish war that we've already looked at last time. Um, and this is uh, about the uh, evacuation of the Greek civilians uh, when the, the Turkish army um, was just advancing on them. Um, so it's the largest possible context, um, kind of um, large-scale geopolitical warfare. That's the macro context. Um, but it's interesting that in this one very short paragraph, um, Hemingway has transitioned to something else. So let's just read this paragraph. Uh, Greek cavalry hooded along the procession. Women and kids were in the cause, crouched with mattresses, mirrors, sewing machines, bundles. There was a woman having a kid with a young girl holding a blanket over her and crying. Scared sick looking at it. It rained all through the evacuation. Okay, so obviously this is classic Hemingway. About as much is packed into this one short paragraph as could be packed into any short paragraph. Uh, beginning with the macro context um, of the evacu evacuation of Greek civilians, um, we move on to something that clearly is picking up on the thematic residue from the first story from Indian camp, a woman having a baby. Um, and it follows the same structure as well, not just a woman having a baby, but someone watching that, observing that, um, and um, being terrified of that fact of life, right? So we, no matter, you know, even though we do know uh, that Indian camp was published separately, I think that we have to grant Hemingway the truth of his statement that the stories and the interchapters are really connected. I mean, they're connected after the fact. The interchapters, at least this particular one, is obviously written um, as a continuation of a meditation on the pain of childbirth. Um, and not just the pain of childbirth as experienced by the person who's going that, through that phenomenon, going through the experience, but also as an observational pain um, in someone who's just an onlooker, what it does to the onlooker. Um, it's the same kind of dynamics, being terrified, being scared, sick, looking at it. So it's not quite as extreme as the husband cutting his own throat, but being scared, sick, looking at it. I would say that is a fairly extreme response as well um, to the phenomenon of childbirth. So Hemingway is obviously interested in people being helpless, being unable to protect themselves when they're faced with 
the injury of others. Um, it's the lack of protective insulation. That is the phenomenon that Hemingway is interested in. Is why is it that only a few people, only people with professional credentials like doctors, um, are well protected, um, and that most of us actually tend to be open to injury, open to violence from others um, in, in, in a very helpless way. Um, and it's because of that basic configuration, openness to the injury, openness to the pain of others, that Hemingway moves on to the last line of this little vignette. It rained all through the evacuation. On the face of it, no connection whatsoever with the preceded passage, right? You know, it was just about evacuation. Um, all of a sudden, there's this detail about it raining. The only connection that I can think of, and it's a conjecture on my part, is that Hemingway has so far been talking about human phenomena, right? War is very much a man-made event. Childbirth is a human man-made as well. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's natural, but you know, human beings have to bring it about. Um, rain is truly a natural phenomenon that is without human input, without human agency. So what we see in this little vignette is a movement in the direction of naturalization. Uh, by the time we get to the end of the vignette, we get a completely natural process without human input about which human beings can do nothing. Right? And this is the resting point. This is the place that Hemingway wants us to get to, a place where we are just passive recipients of something that is coming to us. Rain is something that just happens to us. You know, we just know that we know this. We've just been through this. Rain is something that happens to us. We are passive recipients of something that happens to us. The pain of others is natural in exactly the same way. And we are also passive recipients of the pain of others in the same way that we are passive recipients of rain. Um, there, there is one experiential register um, that is very, very human, um, that is almost independent of human agency. Um, it is uh, an experience simply defined by us as recipients, as people who just stand there and things being visited upon us. Um, so this is, um, I think, very much an affirmation uh, of the line of thinking already started in Indian camp, um, is that no matter how well protected we think we are, um, and no matter how good we are actually at what we um, set out to do, and the doctor obviously is a great doctor, very, very good doctor, um, no matter how good we are at what we set out to do, um, there is a limit uh, to what that can accomplish in the world. And the expertise, the professional expertise of the doctor is always going to run up against a kind of a natural limit. And the pain of childbirth is, in fact, that natural limit. So it's um, a, a very much a concession um, in the direction 
of the naturalist of pain um, and the kind of unavoidable mm -hmm. intensity and the unavoidable violence that they can do to other people. So let's look at um, this. This is basically just uh, repeating summary what I just said. Um, let's look at uh, move on to the doctor. Um, actually, I want to go back so you can think about this. Uh, let's move on to the doctor and the doctor's wife. Uh, and this one isn't, on, on the face of it, it really isn't so much about pain, right? It's not, other if, unless we um, think about guilt or shame as a kind of pain, but it's nothing like the extreme uh, kind of um, mind numbing, mind destroying pain that we see uh, in Indian camp. Um, so uh, it is about the tension between Anglos and Native Americans. So you know we're back to the macro level uh, about the kind of um, socioeconomic uh, tension between two ethnic groups, um, and the tension has to do with the logs that wash ashore um, that really belong to the logging company um, that Nick's father um, claims. Uh, and because they, so as far as he can see, and it's actually true that they belong to nobody. So he's trying to he's hire um, the Native American um, workers, just day laborers, uh, to cut up the wood. Um, and um, he gets into a row with the uh, Native American workers. Uh, Dick Bolton is basically taunting him, right? You know, rubbing it in that those locks are stolen, that they don't belong to him, um, and he's doing something illegal. So the professional doctor is getting more and more flustered um, as this conversation goes on. Um, and it looks like something's going to happen, right? And we know that Dick is a very big man. He's proud of the fact that he's such a big man. He's not afraid of getting into a fight. So the stage is set, really, for a real inter-ethnic conflict. And um, this is um, actually what I'd like to see um, as uh, the first step towards the end of the story, which we know is actually a happy ending. Um, the stage is set for the fight to take place. The fight doesn't take place. What is it that um, stops the fight from taking place? What is it that makes what might have seemed a natural scene of violence from actually being less than natural, um, that, that is to say, preventable, right? So preventable violence, preventable injury, this is what the story is about. So um, this is my candidate um, for the first step in that direction towards the resolution of violence in the direction of peace, uh, which is at what Hemingway is pray, praying for in this, uh, in, in all these stories. Um, Dick says something in Ojibwe. Addie laughed, but Billy Tapeshore looked very serious. He did not understand English, but he had sweat all the time the row was going on. He was fat, with only a few hairs on moustache, like a Chinaman. He picked up the two canned hooks. Dick picked up the axes, and Addie took the saw down from the tree. They started off and walked out past the cottage and out the back gate into the woods. Dick left the gate open. Billy Tapeshore went back and fastened it. Okay. 
So I think it's a really fascinating portrait, and for uh, a writer who prides himself on being completely economical, actually some interesting details. I can't for the life of me figure out what the um, point is for uh, comparing Billy Tape Shaw to the Chinaman. It's just an interesting detail. So you know, something to think about. I can't offer you an explanation uh, why that particular detail uh, is in there. Um, the only uh, possible reason um, is that uh, Hemingway really wants to highlight the fact that because he's not an English speaker, um, therefore, you know, this, all of this is really Greek to him, and I don't wouldn't put it past Hemingway, is resurrecting the Greeks in this way. English is Greek to Billy Tape Shore. Um, so it, it, once again, it looks squarely in the direction of inter-ethnic conflict. Um, and granting uh, primacy uh, to that inter-ethnic conflict. Um, and going so far as to say that, you know, that here is someone who really is completely not in the Anglo camp, not sharing the language at all, not even having that common ground. Right? But what is really odd, and I think that that really is the point in emphasizing that Dick obviously is totally fluent in English, um, Billy is not fluent at all, can't understand anything. Um, but even though he doesn't have language as to share common ground with the Anglos, he nonetheless knows there's something about the chemistry and the atmosphere of an incipient fight that people can pick up on even if they don't understand the language, right? So this is still Hemingway going some distance in the direction of naturalizing conflict. It is such a natural process that language as an artificial human invention is not necessary. It's not necessary for us to understand that something is about to happen. So the fact that Billy is completely, fully in comprehension of the situation suggests that conf conflict is, 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 is very deep. And it is so deep that it's kind of a, we have kind of a primitive apprehension um, of its incipients. Um, so what is also interesting um, is that as the as the, Native, as the Native Americans, the Indian laborers leave, they pick up all the tools that could be used as potential weapons, right? So they're not using those things yet as weapons of aggression or self-defense or anything like that. They're just still using those as, as tools. They've done the work. They're going to take those things st away still as tools. But the fact that they has left the gate open for me, suggests that he's also leaving open the possibility that those, the can hooks, um, the saw, um, that those things that right now are serving only as useful tools could also be used as weapons. He's leaving open that possibility, right? So, you know, and he would, be pleased, actually, if those tools were to be put to a secondary and more deadly use. Um, what is interesting is that Billy, who doesn't understand English but who completely understands the situation, is the one who goes back and fastens the gate. Right. So this is a very important detail from Hemingway 
that it is someone who really has no personal relation, has no you know, ties really to the Anglos. He's the one who actually performs the important task of closing the gate. So he's one peacemaker coming from a very unexpected place. But the fact that it is Billy who's performing that function suggests that there's almost a counterpoint to the natural violence. Just as there's a kind of a natural tendency towards violence, there's also a natural tendency to keeping the peace. That both are firmly embedded in us, both are primitive in us, and primitive by primitive I mean very, very powerful. The more primitive they are, the more deep-seated they are, and more likely they are going to play out. So being a peacemaker is actually a very um, deep-seated uh, desire, really, in all of us. Um, and it's being played out in Billy. And um, so I'd like to thank um, Tess another possibility. Um, who else is Billy being aligned with? Um, if Billy is going, taking the first step uh, to stop the conflict, um, is there anyone else in the story um, that's completing the work for him? Is there some, 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 anyone else in the story um, that actually finishes the task that is begun by Billy? Um, and obviously, if we turn to the ending of the story, uh, we see that there's a very uh, crucial conversation uh, between the doctor and the doctor's wife, the two people who are named in the title of the story. Uh, dear, I don't think, I really don't think, that anyone would really do a thing like that. No. No, I can't really believe that anyone would do a thing of that sort intentionally. And the doctor is saying that, you know, that Billy is, uh, that Dick is picking up a fight so that he wouldn't have to pay the medical bills. Uh, that this is all intentional on the part of Dick, that this is, uh, getting into a fight would mean that everything would be off between the two of them, no medical bills to be paid. Doctor's wife is saying no. Um, so she's saying that, okay, you know, that's not likely. Um, the doctor stood up and put the shotgun in the corner behind the dresser. Are you going out, dear, his wife said. I think I'll go for a walk, the doctor said. If you see Nick, dear, will you tell him his mother wants to see him, his wife said. Um, it's an interesting thing to say. Um, it's, it's, it's not surprising for the wife to say, okay, you know, you see our son, tell him to come in. Um, Except that right after she says that, and the doctor goes out, he slams the door. Right? Um, and the wife catches her breath as he goes out and slams the door. So let's think for a moment about the two things that the wife says. One is that she doubts that Dick is picking a fight so that he wouldn't have to pay the medical bills. And the other thing that she says is, if you see Nick, tell him that I want to see him and he should come in to see me. What is the effect of saying that? The doctor says that to Nick. What does Nick do? Nick says, I want to go with you. He doesn't want to go in to see his mother. He doesn't want to go in the house to see his mother. So the effect of the mother saying, I want to see Nick, actually has the effect that is demonstrated in the ending of the story, is that Nick is going to go with his father. 
and we can't think of a better companion, a better tool for the mother to use to stop the doctor from getting into a fight with his Native American workers, right? As long as Nick is there, we know that he's never going to get into a fight. So the way I'm reading the story, um, and you know, obviously a conjectural reading, um, but this is the best the doctor's wife can do as a peacemaker, is to engineer a scenario in which a fight is highly unlikely to take place. And it turns out that she is an expert in engineering that scenario. By telling Nick to come in to see her, she succeeded in exactly achieving the outcome of the story. Nick going off with his father to see the black squirrels, no violence happening. So we can say that the three, the two stories and the inner chapter that together, all three of them, perform all-rounded meditation on violence and pain. One pointing in the direction of the naturalist of violence and pain. The other pointing in the equal naturalness of peace prevailing, right? That it doesn't have to be. Violence doesn't have to be. Pain to others, pain to oneself doesn't have to be. It could be stopped. It could be prevented. So this is, I would say, this is a very typical structure in Hemingway, um, is to give us um, both meditation on both sides of the spectrum, um, testing both, both possibilities, and um, allowing the three to be in dialogue. So you know, as far as I can see, I think that Hemingway is right, that everything, in fact, hangs on everything else. Um, and we really should see them in relation to one another. So we'll come back on Thursday, and we'll try out another way of clustering the stories.